Well, welcome to week two of I Love Jesus, But I'm Not Weird. Uh, in this series, we are comparing and contrasting um, certain trends in modern Christianity with the apostles in the book of Acts. And I've got my green screen uh, behind me uh, today. We're trying something a little bit new as we are recording from my house. Um, my first question for you and for all of us uh, this morning is, have you ever been a part of a cult? That's a strange question to ask, and it's certainly a strange one to begin a sermon. But when I think of the word cult, uh, there are several things that are kind of conjured up in my mind, right? Number one, brainwashing. Uh, or two, like dictator-like leadership. Um, no room for questions. Uh, a separation from those on the outside. Uh, I've never been a part of a cult myself, but there have been times when I've seen the church act like a cult. Have you ever known somebody, maybe your friends, with someone, and they start going to a certain church, and now all of a sudden, they, they have no time for their old friends. Uh, the only friends they have are uh, people who attend that church as well, and it seems like their whole life revolves around that church. Now, I'm saying this as a pastor. Our lives should not revolve around the local church. Our lives should revolve around Jesus. And Jesus was all about hanging with people who didn't go to church. Uh, there is a danger in coming to church. And the danger is that you begin to feel like you're in, which in inevitably means they're out. We can begin to categorize people. Sometimes we do this on our own, a kind of spiritual snobbery. At other times, it's modeled and encouraged from the, those leaders in the pulpit. The pastor gets on the stage, he rails about how bad those people are and how good we are, and uses chapter and verse to describe how wrong they are and how right we are, and the church grows larger and larger because there is comfort and security in being right. There's comfort in being safe. So the cycle begins again. We go to this church, we slowly cut off all the relationships outside the church, and we are told every Sunday how right we are, how wrong they are, and then we begin to see others with a suspicious lens because they're outsiders. We begin to see people made in God's image as distractions to be ignored or enemies to be defeated. That's how we see people. We see them as distractions to be ignored or enemies to be overcome. Jesus calls us to reject this cycle. And this is clearly seen in the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 10. Now Acts 10 through 11.8 is the longest single narrative throughout the book of Acts. And it's the principle of proportion, right? Like because this takes up such, it's a story, Acts is a story full of narratives and this is the longest one. It's an important story. In the story, God broke into Peter's comfortable life and thrust him out of the boundaries of the nation of Israel. Peter was raised with a Jewish mindset, and it's important to realize that in the Jewish mindset, there were three classes of people. There were Jews, which was any Israelite, and you couldn't become a real Jew other than by birth, okay? It's your nationality, it's also your religion. Then there were proselytes. They were non-Jews who had adopted the Jewish religion and had gone through the initiation ceremonies of circumcision and baptism. And then three, it was everybody else. People who were not initiated into the Jewish religion um, was a Gentile and therefore a pagan. 
And among this group of people, there was a group of people called God-fearers. They may have worshipped God, they may have prayed, but they haven't been initiated into uh, the Jewish faith. This was the Jewish worldview. And in many ways, it was the worldview of the Old Testament. But God is about to change Peter's worldview in a very drastic way. Our story starts in Acts chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout, God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Isn't that beautiful? Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called his two servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. A centurion was a middle officer in the Roman army. He commanded around 100 men. And this particular centurion was stationed in Caesarea, which was a beautiful land, a nice posting for the Roman Empire. So he seems to be favored. He seems to be well-respected. And he is not Jewish. He is a proselyte. He is a God-fearer or a Gentile. And just the fact that God would give a vision to a Roman soldier is radical. It's scandalous in the first century. And in that vision, the angel says that his prayers and gifts to the poor are an offering to God. God says that about a Roman, a Gentile. That's a radical statement in the first century Jewish world. So Cornelius sends his men to fetch Peter. And meanwhile, Peter's staying at Simon the Tanner's house in Joppa. And about lunchtime, Peter goes on top of the roof to pray. And while he's up there, he falls asleep. The Bible says that he fell into a trance. Was he dreaming? Was this a supernatural vision? The answer is yes. Uh, verse 11 says that he saw heaven opened and something like a large sheep being let down by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Pete says, no way. Okay? Jewish law explicitly states that he is not to eat those kinds of animals. He, so he says, I've never eaten those in my life, and I'm certainly not going to start now. Those animals are unclean. Then the voice says, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happens three times. Peter is so stubborn. I think it's one of the reasons God chooses Peter in this. Because he's so stubborn. You see, in the early church, they had a really difficult time believing that anybody other than the Jewish people could be saved, could be on the inn. And it wasn't just that Jews couldn't eat pork. There was a litany of food that the Jews couldn't eat. And over time, food became a religious symbol for the Jewish people. And it was a way of knowing who's in and who's out. And so Peter is kind of still pondering this dream. And all of a sudden, the doorbell rings. And who is there? Well, the servants of Cornelius, of course, the Roman centurion, the pagan, the Gentile. Verse 19, while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up, go downstairs, and do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. 
God sent them. They were sent by God. The Jewish prohibition on certain kinds of food was reinforced by the Jewish prohibition of eating with non-Jews. As a Jew, you not only couldn't eat like a Gentile, you couldn't eat with a Gentile. And now there's three Gentiles knocking on Pete's door. You couldn't eat with them. You couldn't invite them in. That's how it works with religion. These laws against certain foods eventually became laws against certain people. Which inevitably leads to prejudice. Prejudice is prejudging a person or a people. Prejudging. And when it comes to our own prejudging, here's what we often do. We back up our prejudices by finding out just enough facts that support what we already believe, and then we conveniently ignore the rest. And the first century Jews and Gentiles did the same thing. Many first century Jews could tell all kinds of terrible stories of the wicked things that the Gentiles did. One of the reasons some Jews gave for not going into Gentile houses and eating with them was that they said that the houses were polluted by Gentiles and, and they had forced their women to have abortions and then put the dead fetuses down the drains and under the floorboards. This was a rumor going around the Jewish people about the Gentile people. And in the same sort of way, some Gentiles were taught that Jews were stuck up, unsocial, because they wouldn't eat pork. Pork was the cheapest, the least expensive kind of meat, and the Jews turned their heads to it because that's what the law said. And also, Jews insisted that they don't work every single Saturday. And so they were lazy because of the Sabbath. They were uptight. They never would hang out with normal people. These were some of the prejudiced inclinations between Jews and Gentiles in first century Palestine. And from the Jewish perspective, this wasn't just a matter of not eating with Gentiles. This was something that their Bible taught them. Their Bible, our Old Testament, gave them guidance to separate from Gentiles, from non-Jews. The early Christians began to understand something. They, they saw something in light of Jesus, and because of Jesus, and in Jesus. That the law was to be seen as something for a particular time, in a particular purpose. Some of you might be asking, are you saying that part of the Bible says to do one thing, but then later on, it tells you to do something else. Isn't that contradicting? Isn't the Bible contradicting itself? Imagine a mother seeing her child on the other side of the street and about to cross a busy road. The mom yells, stop, stay still, stay still. She yells at the top of her lungs. Then a minute later, the traffic has come to a complete stop and she shouts back, walk across. Come now. She hasn't contradicted herself, right? The initial command was the right one for the time. Indeed, it is because she wanted the child to walk across in the end that she told him to stand still for the moment. If he hadn't, he wouldn't have made it across. This is the kind of shift that's happening for Peter with this vision on the rooftop. Everything he was told loudly by God before, God is now saying something else. Don't call what I make clean. 
unclean. Now God had already been preparing Peter to think differently. Just the chapter before, uh, Peter goes and checks on the Samaritans and sees what's happening there. And the Samaritans were half-breeds. They were half-Jewish and they were half-pagan, half-Gentile. And uh, he checks out to see what God's doing there and God is on the move in Samaria among these half-Jews. And then at the end of chapter 9, we see that in Joppa, Peter's staying at the house of Simon the Tanner. A tanner doesn't mean someone who goes regularly to a tanning booth. Okay? They didn't have those back then. It's someone who tans the hides of dead animals. And remember Jewish law. You don't go near anything that's dead. It's a big no-no. And so here's Peter staying at the house of someone who works with dead things. So God is already breaking down. He's beginning to break down the religious rules that are hindering Peter's worldview. He's beginning to, to, to shine light through the crevices of Peter's heart to expand his worldview. Perhaps God, too, has begun to break down some of the religious rules in your own life and in your own worldview. Maybe we meet someone we're always taught is the bad guy. We meet someone who is one of them. And they seem to be nothing like who, they, who you were always told they would be. Now, you, can, you have two choices. You can reject them in your life because they threaten how you see the world and how you've grown up seeing the world. Or perhaps they are three men sent by God from Caesarea to open up your world. This is difficult for us because we already start with a negativity bias. See, here's how this works. We start with a built-in negativity bias, okay? It's been imprinted onto the human race. And it's good for survival. We as humans, as a race, have this. We've always had it for thousands and thousands of years. But there's two kinds of mistakes, okay? For instance, uh, if I make a mistake, if, if, if I hear a rustling of bushes and branches, uh, you know, and I go, what is that? I, I think that's a tiger. I think there's a living tiger in the bushes over there. And I scream and holler. I tell everyone to run because there's a jungle cat hiding in the bushes. But it was a mistake. It was just a squirrel. Okay, I made a mistake. And now that mistake has consequences. Okay, everyone makes fun of me. Silly John. It was just a squirrel and he thought it was a jungle cat. Um, and the consequence is my embarrassment. But if I make the reverse mistake, if I hear some rustling in the bushes and I say, it's got to be a squirrel. Everybody, come on over here. Check this out. It's got to be a squirrel. But in the bushes is an actual tiger. I have made another mistake. And it too has a consequence. My death. So over time, we have evolved with this negativity bias. We don't call it that. We say it's better safe than sorry. We call it self-preservation. But what happens is we take that negativity bias into many areas of our lives. We use it on people. And we incorporate it into our religion and into our religious views. And we begin to fear others. I don't know you. You're from another tribe. Can I trust you? I doubt it. So I'll shoot first and ask questions later. I'm going to be skeptical, skeptical of you because it's best for me. Our negativity bias might be good for humans to survive, but it's not good for communities to thrive. For that, we need love. Love moves us beyond survival to thrival. 
We lay our lives down and take the risk of loving our real or even potential enemies, and in the process, we may affect them at the same time. This is what we're called to do as followers of Jesus. So here's how the negativity bias could be sabotaging your life, your worldview, and the lives of people that you know. Okay, I've got a little graph here to demonstrate this. First, you have negative thinking. Negative thinking leads to suspicion and judgment. Well, I don't know if I trust that person. Uh, you know, that person is, isn't very, uh, I wish they were more. Uh, and you know what? People who are suspicious and judgmental are not pleasant to be around, so it then creates relational distance. So two things will happen. You're pushing others away because of your ne negativity bias. You don't trust them. You judge them. But guess what? They'll push you away as well. Because actually, they don't want to be around you. What will that do? Well, that will lead to confirmation and reinforcement. I knew it. It can't be trusted. They're mean. They're always keeping their distance from me. They're a bad person. All of this just confirms our negative thinking, and the cycle goes on and on and on. And we're not being the loving people that God has called us to be. Jesus calls us out of negative thinking and moves us into love. This isn't something that Christians have been particularly great at over the years. Perhaps you can relate. Here's one way we see it in our lives. If you get a sense of glee at the sight of one of them, one of those people, failing or being defeated, a, a telltale sign of this kind of subtle enjoyment is when someone mutters beneath their breath, well, I'm sure glad I'm not one of them. See, we're right after all. What goes around comes around. There's this strange sense of vengeful satisfaction when we're proven right about something. We get a certain sense of security that comes at the expense of someone who is outside our group. This is profoundly unchristian. All of this perverse enjoyment is a sign that we have been in-grouping. And in Acts 10, God is pushing and shoving Peter to go beyond his religious rules, his religious boundaries. But there's hope for us. Because there's hope for Peter. He's beginning to get it. He invites these non-Jewish guys in for the night. Normally a Jew would say, well, it's nice to meet you. There's a nice hotel down the street. No. Peter, he invites them in. God's working on him. He's beginning to think less and less about what people think about him and more about what God thinks of him. And so the next day he goes with these Gentiles to the house of Cornelius, the Roman centurion, the pagan Gentile. And once he enters the house, there's a large group of Gentiles inside. And this is what Peter says. He says, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. He starts off just calling it like it is. You guys all know that I'm breaking the law. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for... I came without raising any objection. Notice that when Peter summarizes what God had taught him, he says, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Actually, that's not what God showed him in the vision, right? In the vision, God said, don't call anything unclean that I've made clean. And Peter makes the second leap. And he says, I should that God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Wow. Isn't that beautiful? Wouldn't we have such a better witness in our world if we were to stop calling so many people impure or unclean? 
that if our eyes would be opened as God opened Peter's eyes in Acts chapter 10. Peter here, he's breaking the law and he publicly admits that, to that fact. But Peter knew that God changed the rules. In a few short sentences, this brash disciple from Galilee, now who, who's now a respected apostle from Jerusalem, would sweep away centuries of religious and racial prejudice. And because of this story, because of this story found in Acts chapter 10, the message of Jesus went beyond Jewish walls. And it was poured out to all the world. No longer was Jesus only the Jewish Messiah, but he was the Messiah of the world. He's not just Lord of your life. He's not just Lord over Israel. He's Lord of all. Let's declare that to him now.